Oh What Fun Christmas Special, a Never Odd or Even production. Whenever I get gloomy about the state of the world, I think about Christmas movies. General opinion is starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. It seems to me that Christmas is in so many movies. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. And I've got a sneaky feeling that Christmas movies actually are all around. I feel it in my fingers. In my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Love is all rough. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> well, uh, doesn't it just get you going? We're here again for another uh, Christmas special, uh, and I can see that there's already five viewers in the uh, in the Twitch channel, so that's fantastic. Um, we'll try and keep up with you as much as we can if you leave us a message. There will be a slight lag um, in there, um, so... Um, if you put something in, just be patient. We will get to you. I'll be monitoring Twitch. Um, and, uh, of course, this will be translated into a podcast uh, sometime between now and Christmas Day. But it is the 25th of November, um, and uh, there are five weeks left to Christmas. Um, uh, for those who are counting the election, we Christ the King Sunday tomorrow, which is going to be really exciting, or the Reign of Christ. Um, so uh, we've got lots to talk about today. Um, those who joined us last year will remember we talked about uh, Gremlins, uh, we talked about um, uh, Die Hard, we established that Die Hard was a Christmas movie, um, we uh, also looked at uh, Jingle All the Way with Arnold Schwarzenegger and we also looked at the, the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special. So we thought we'd follow up this year and actually push the boundaries of Christmas and look at the Lethal Weapon movie, see whether it qualifies as a Christmas movie. Uh, Love Actually, which is as Christmassy as it comes, uh, and uh, The Muppet Christmas Carol, um, as well as looking at the Doctor Who Christmas Invasion, which is the very first episode that David Tennant appears. And I am uh, joined today uh, by uh, my my good streaming friends uh, and media enthusiasts, Hunter Mitch, Lindsay Cullen, and Jay Robinson. Um, so we're, uh, we've got the band back together uh, a year later, uh, and we're ready to explore these these uh, wonderful movies. We thought we might do the movies chronologically, so we'll jump in um, with Lethal Weapon. Um, Lethal Weapon, which was released in uh, uh, 1987, um, starring uh, uh, Mel Gibson um, and Danny Glover, uh, is, a, is, is an iconic 80s movie. Uh, I remember going to the movies to see it um, at Christmas time when it came out. Um, so uh, let's 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 jump straight off. Um, uh, who wants to go first? Tell us what you think of Lethal Weapon as a Christmas movie. Well, Will, I, I I've been looking at the movies, and uh, I, I I thought I'd try and you know capture each one succinctly. Uh, sometimes using a quote, and there was a a great quote uh, in Lethal Weapon that I thought you know is kind of like my summation of of the movie. It's goddamn Christmas. <laughs> that's, you have to shoot the TV after you say that, don't shoot you? Shoot the TV <laughs> after you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I was saying before, I'd completely forgotten that this was set at Christmas time and I settled down to watch it knowing 
to expect some interesting language from Mel Gibson. Um, and it was Christmas carols to start with. Um, good old Jingle Bell Rock. Yep. Indeed. <laughs> it is not a genre that really uh, gets my attention. So uh, I have to admit, like, I, I know I've seen two out of the four diehards. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, and for a very similar reason, it's just not... Um, not 100% my cup of tea. I think Point Break I didn't watch until like, my friend was halfway through it and I sat down in the lounge room kind of thing. So, um, but so I've got a question for you. Considering we can uh, said that Die Hard last year was a Christmas movie because you couldn't have it at any other time, what is your opinion on uh, that criteria for our lethal weapon? Oh, it's a great question. So you, what you're saying is if we set this movie at Easter time, would it be an Easter movie if there was like, you know, eggs and bunnies and that kind of stuff? I, I think you're right. I think that Lethal Weapon kind of slides into the Christmas movie kind of genre because there's Christmas lights, Christmas trees, carols and, you know, Jingle Bell Rock. Um, but, yeah, if if it wasn't there, it wouldn't um, it wouldn't damage the status or the story or the plot of the movie. Uh, that's That's how I feel about it. No, I think I'd echo that. You could put it at any time of the year and still be die uh, not die hard, lethal weapon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look, I'll 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 make it uh, three from three. Uh, I think you know it, it tried and it came back to the Christmas theme a few times. Uh, you know, like I, I think the the one theme where there was just a little bit was clearly. One of the themes that um, the Mel Gibson character talks about is what it's like to lose a loved one at Christmas and that that's actually a, a really bad time to have lost a, a loved one. And, and he says that to the, the fellow who's threatening to suicide as well. I, I know that this can be a, a really difficult season for some people. So there was that there, um, but you could pull that out without losing most of the plot of the movie. I think yeah, it doesn't really, for me, qualify as a Christmas movie. I think um, one of the things that does kind of help with that is is that there is that sense in which, I mean, we have these blue Christmas services. We have these times where we we sit with people and acknowledge because even if you haven't lost somebody at Christmas time, um, the first of anything, the first birthday, the first anniversary, the first Christmas, um, you experience that whole, that grief, grief and loss. And that's what we're we're seeing very poignantly in this movie too. And uh, trigger warning: um, there there is an extreme level of trauma that actually is experienced by the Martin Riggs character played by Mel Gibson at losing his his wife um, at at that time, and he's wondering whether or not he can go on. Um, he um, the 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 touching moment at the end of the scenes where he hands a bullet wrapped in in ribbon to to Myrtle and says to him, "I won't need this anymore." Um, that he's actually moved moved through his grief um, and found new family, which um, is good um, because um, that is the, the hardest part when that whole presents itself at an anniversary. The very first time I did a Blue Christmas service in one of my placements, I had a congregational member come up and say, say thank you because that was the first time she was given permission to grieve for her mother who had died 20 years ago but it was the first time that that permission was there. So that space to to name it and and experience, I think, is a really important thing. 
Yeah, and I think that the um, the the theme of, of family, which clearly is one of the themes in uh, Lethal Weapon, both uh, you know um, uh, Danny Glover's uh, family or his his character's family, uh, and then the the sense of found family that uh, the Mel Gibson uh, character experiences. That that is a, a theme which we often get at Christmas. I mean, you could do it at any time of year, but it is a theme. The theme of family and being with family uh, does regularly come up uh, with Christmas things. What I was going to say earlier was just in in terms of your trigger warnings um, or, or um, uh, other other warnings. This is uh, you know an, an adult film. It starts with uh, some nudity, which I found you know, quite gratuitous, really. Um, there's extreme violence in, in this particular movie. Uh, one of the things which really disturbed me was um, uh, when Noel Gibson's character, uh, in, in reference to the possibility of a, a, um, a same-sex liaison, describes that as disgusting. Uh, and I, I wondered whether that was actually trying to pander to a, a conservative, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, group following or to make up for some of the some of the other nudity and, and so forth that had been there. So, you know, there's some things that um, I'd, I'd avoid out of this movie, as well as some things like the family uh, theme, which are which are quite quite touching. Yeah, any um, holiday involving family. I know Americans are currently or have just finished uh, Thanksgiving, um, which is a big family uh, event for them, as well as then going into Christmas for the worldwide. Um, even like you know, grief is very important, but grieving alive people as well um, can be hard. So if you've had family trauma. Uh, splits and gone non con you know low no contact and things like that mm-hmm. um, can be very hard around that time of year so sympathies mm-hmm. to uh, those people as well as those who have lost you know because that is also a type of grief we find um, with those types of events mm-hmm. Absolutely. We've just got some um, audience um, uh, feedback from a longtime friend of the podcast, Robin Yang, who is saying hello from Bunurong Country. Um, He's um, he's, uh, really shaking his head a little bit that Die Hard and Lethal Weapon could be Christmas movies. It's hurting his brain. Um, So thanks, Robin, for your uh, your feedback there. Um, Just picking up on what Lindsay just said, too, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I found really uh, confronting. Um, now that I just, it just went through to the keeper in 1987 when I saw it. Um, um, so we talked about the references to sexuality. We talked about, um, there's a lot of bloke stuff. There's a conversation about, uh, being an eighties man means that you cry, uh, in bed. Uh, he happened to be alone, uh, at the time. Um, but there, you know, but, but what really struck me was, was the, the acceptable level of police brutality, um, in this one. Um, there's this this final scene where they're on the lawn um, with Christmas decorations all around them, and the fire hydrants just burst out of the ground. And they make Murtock makes the decision that he's going to allow um, Riggs Mel Gibson to beat Gary Boosie to death, uh, Mr. Joshua. Um, that that and not only that, he's he's egging him on. He's saying break his neck, like he's like so. The, and then the police are all standing around cheering as one of their own actually gets into this trial by combat. I suddenly thought I was in Game of Thrones, not in um, not on the streets of uh, 
whatever city they happen to be in. But um, it, it, it did make me think that we've actually come a bit of a way since 1987 um, and that, that um, perhaps uh, we've awoken a bit more than we, um, than we used to, because I, I, I would, I, I, I don't, didn't recall actually being horrified when I saw it uh, in 87. The feelings in, um, I suppose, everywhere, like I know this is an everywhere problem, but I keep coming back to America, is that um, it, it hasn't gone away. We're just more aware of it. And a lot of that has come about with the portrayal of social media, that cameras are more readily available. It's not that it's never happened. It's that it's uh, evidence is more readily available to it. And so I feel like there's a little bit of propaganda or copaganda sometimes where we're rooting for Mel Gibson. We're rooting because he's the hero. And so whatever he does is right, even beating someone to death. And so um, I yeah, I'm really glad that that's, that's a thing where we can step back and go, this is really dated. It is something that happened, like it is something that happens. So glad that it hasn't been you know, swept under the rug, but we do need to continue to point the things out like that. One of the odd rev Twitch followers, Dav Sav for Life, has said that Lethal Weapon has definitely not aged well. And uh, I think we'd all agree that that's the case. Uh, speaking of aging well, um, I, I'm worried that I haven't aged well either. Um, I was quite confronted when um, when Myrtle was presented with his 50th birthday cake in the bath that I kind of went, 50? But he's old. And then I went, <laughs> hold on, I'm 52. Now I am older than the man who's too old for this shit. Um, like, you know, so I had a little bit of a, you know, aging well crisis uh, in the midst of that as well. Well, you said you went to the movies to see this, and I have to say that it's, I wasn't around <laughs> for the movies. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> if that adds to it, I don't know. <laughs> That's right. 1987. I was still in school. Okay, so I'm going to, yeah. <laughs> Um, it was probably one of those movies that I just made the age range for. I think the other thing that, um, you know, when you were talking about the, the violence at the end and, 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 you know, thankfully he doesn't end up killing him at, at the last moment when he's clearly got him, you know, where he could kill him, he says, oh, it's not worth it. But it, it, it buys into, and I, I think, um, you know, Die Hard, in a sense, did this as well last year. It buys into that myth of redemptive violence, doesn't it? The the idea that there is mm. some violence which is good and which brings closure. You know, we want the good guys to go in guns blazing and, and kill all the baddies, and that will make us, you know, feel like justice has been done and we're all happy. And, and of course, you know, in, in real life, we discovered that it's a myth, and I, I think at this particular Christmas time of the terrible violence being enacted at the moment in the Middle East um, with uh, uh, Israel and, and Palestine and and just this the cycle of violence begetting violence that that we have seen now for you know 60 years or whatever it is and and it's just continuing. Well I'm glad we started with this one because <laughs> the other ones are a little bit like more lighthearted I feel. <laughs> So, I mean, there's that violent redemptive quality in this one, but there's another redemption happening alongside this. We kind of touched on it before with the Blue Christmas stuff, that that there is a journey back to life that that is taken by Mel Gibson's character in this episode, in this series. And, and, and it comes from, 
comes from him reconnecting with people um and um i did a funeral yesterday and one of the things that i say in my funeral liturgy is that um a part of the funeral service is to to inspire us with love to return to life to bless the living um and there is that sense in which you know um there is mourning there is grief it is it is traumatic um to lose anyone let alone in a in a violent way when find out more about that in lethal weapon 2 no spoilers though um <laughs> there there but 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 there, it is a journey to actually a redemptive journey to return to life and to living um and to be able to be a blessing even if it is violently attacking Mr. Joshua on Murtaugh's lawn. I think connected with that will is the fact that we don't do that journey by ourselves, mm. that it's really important to find a, a traveller who will go with us, even with, as Murtaugh didn't want to at the start, have anything mm. to do with Riggs, um, yep. the bond that they eventually get together and, and do that last bit of travelling is, I'm sure if we look deeply, we could see pictures of our own journeys in that too. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I, I think I think we've established that it is a movie that occurs at Christmas time, that has Christmas-like redemptive qualities, but does not essentially need to be a Christmas movie. All right. Moving on. Muppet Christmas Carol. Now I, I did watch this one again to prepare for this one, but but this is a yearly watch in our household. We watched this one coming up to Christmas. I, I admit I've watched it a little earlier this year than. Than normally um but uh, and i'll we'll watch it again because i i watched it with my notepad um and i'll watch it with family but um uh it, it's a uh it's a construction um for muppets uh with its original musical score based on the 1843 charles dickens um work a christmas carol um and uh it, it stays pretty true to this michael kane does a fabulous Work. I, I can't imagine how hard it must be to be a human actor surrounded by Muppets. Um, although sometimes I do feel like that at work. Um. <laughs> I, I absolutely love this. Like if Lethal Weapon is zero on my interest scale, every Muppets is a 10 or 11. So um, my favourite little tidpiece of um, trivia for this movie is that Michael Caine agreed to play the role if he could play it as if he was like a Shakespearean actor on um, on on a theatre, um, what do they call it, West End in um, in Britain. And they were like, yeah. And so there's only really two ways to be in a, a human in a Muppet movie. That's either be the, the um, treat their cast members like they were humans or become a Muppet. <laughs> and Michael Caine does a really good job of these aren't Muppets. These aren't, this isn't silly. This is, we're doing a Christmas carol. And they just happen to be puppets. So, yeah, the the uh, script, I think, you know, particularly as far as Michael Caine's character goes, it, it's it's very true to the story. And and as you said, he brings that sort of Shakespearean sort of quality to it, and uses the old English and 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 so forth. Um, in in fact, you know, mostly I think it hews fairly closely. Uh, to the original story, other than you know, with some of the little Muppet inventions, and and of course uh, Gonzo as uh, Muppet Dickens is very cute, and and uh, the little rat, whatever his name is, I I I I thought all Rizzo. little rats in Rizzo, that's right, right, all little rats in accounting. I thought you know the the title for this movie could be "There's No Accounting for Rats." <laughs> 
Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> I um I have to say, uh, is it, it's Tim Rice, I think, not Tim Russ, who's a Vulcan in Star Trek, but Tim Rice, <laughs> who actually plays in the Muppet Treasure Island, and he has a very similar approach to working with the Muppets. That uh, these two actors, they really find themselves alive. Um, Is that Tim stage. Curry you're talking about? Tim Curry. Why did I say Tim Rice? <laughs> you know, because curry goes with rice and, you know, you can have curry and rice together. I think you're Tim right. Rice it is, is Tim a, Curry. Is a, um, music, uh, music, a writer. Writer. music writer. Yeah, oh, yes. like and, who, and Tim uh, Russ obviously is our favourite Vulcan. So, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, uh, <laughs> um, I think he I think he worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber on some of his Broadway um, shows. So, yes, mm-hmm. that's why I was like, Tim Curry. Tim, Tim Curry. Tim Curry, absolutely. Good Tim pick up Curry there. treats himself as a Muppet <laughs> and then, yeah. But at the same time, he, he really puts himself out there yes. like musical theatre as well. Like, you know, that both 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 um, Michael and Tim in, in these two movies, they really, they're, they're not, they're not, treating it like it's some kind of oh damn I've I've scored the short end of the stick here they they've actually gone no this is a this is a professional production and I'm going to be an actor I love the different versions of the of the Christmas carol I have to admit it's it's one of my favorite dickens and to see the different way people do it um is wonderful but the muppets just open the doors to everybody coming in and enjoying and relating and just make it that much more accessible. I think it's great. It was my first version as a kid. Like, I think I was like, who's, who, who wrote this book without the Muppets in it? (laughs) (laughs) I do have to say the one, one bit I found a little bit confronting with the the Muppets was uh, right at the start when they're showing the market and, you know, they're, they're showing the food and then, you know, saying about how you come and buy your food to eat for Christmas dinner. And, and I just found that a little confronting. I don't want my food to talk back to me, you know. <laughs> well, the, the quote that comes out there is that even the vegetables don't like him, Ebenezer Scrooge. Yes. Yes. I thought that was quite a, quite a good quote, even the vegetables. Don't. But you're right, it was something uh, restaurant at the end of the universe, Douglas Adamsy there, where the food is talking to us and then that might put you off your Christmas meal. Um, well, look, let's dig in a little bit more. Bar humbug. Um, we've got three ghosts, past, present, and future. Um, the themes in this about redemption, um, about um, evaluating our lives, about making changes. Um, let's have a look at um, at some of those. I mean, it's probably more looking at Charles Dickens than Muppets, but it, um, there's some really good themes in this story around that. I think I when when Scrooge begins that. Um, declaration of redemption, um, just as the last ghost is about. I think he says it first as the last ghost is about to appear. Um, I did wonder at times, is this a little too fast? But it's obviously a really big journey. And, again, the journey stuff's what works. It's a journey that he's taking. Um, and it's it's a privilege think that's the right word to be able to stop and look at what you have done and try and make a change when you know you haven't done as well as you could I found it interesting that uh in Scrooge as played by Michael Caine there is that sense of recognizing that he's fallen short and and as you said uh, Jay um even you know before the last goes starting to talk about needing to change whereas um the the um 
the Statler and Waldorf um, ghosts uh, coming back as, as his partners, they really didn't show any repentance. Like they were still, you know, uh, giggling uh, about the idea of children standing there with frozen teddy bears. And, you know, they, they it was almost like they'd been told they had to go and warn him, but but they didn't have any sense of, of redemption or repentance themselves, whereas the, the Scrooge character does come to that recognition, I've done wrong and I need to change. I think that adds to um, not only looking back it, um, just because anyone could kind of go, yeah, I looked back or I went to my um, my employees and they're starving. Okay, that's fine. But it's the knowledge, the added knowledge that this is wrong or I could have changed that and it to be a positive thing. So Michael Caine or uh, Scrooge got that journey of um, added knowledge, not only looking back, but was able to be like, I've, I know that now that is wrong and it can be changed. Whereas the partners um, probably didn't have that. They were probably like, oh, well, you know, like, so um, like you said, they were flip, flimb- you know, flippant and laughing. And so they were just like, yeah, what, what do you want me to do about it? They didn't have that privilege, like Jay said, of uh, extra knowledge or being told to go through this journey with someone else who can point that those things out. I think there was something really nice too about keeping the persona of the Muppets, even though we're playing different roles. So in the original Charles Dickens Christmas Carol, there is only one Marley. Um, and the book actually begins by saying that Marley is as dead as a doornail. That's the opening line, um, which actually uh, Gonzo delivers, but he says the Marleys. So they brought Statler and Walder in, the two old heckling guys who My are favorite. up there. They, their their job is to actually heckle and, and make fun of everything. And so there was a sense in which they remained in their Muppet role whilst they were doing that, which which to me brought a almost demonic um, aspect to what they were doing when they were in their chains. They were there to taunt him, um, not to warn him. Uh, it's, it'd be easy for us to fall into this whole, whole Lazarus and the rich man kind of um, uh, idea that they'd come back in urgency to say change or else, but they were almost urging him to say, look, we're, we're damned, come and be damned with us. Um, and um, they didn't, didn't even seem to be indicating there was a redemption from the chains they were caught in. They were almost inviting him to be, to be chained with them. I found um, one of the interesting things, with this um, particular uh, adaptation was um, that there were lots of allusions to the Christian Christmas story, but but nothing definitive. Like, you know, the, they talked about uh, the importance of sharing news of peace and love, or they talked about having faith in our hearts. Uh, you know, Tiny Tim talks about going to church, uh, you know, with his, his canes or whatever, and and how he thought that that would be good because people could remember the person uh, who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Um, but but there was no direct allusion to the Christmas story as we would think about it as as Christians. Uh, instead, it, it seemed to be setting up, you know, the alternate story that um, uh, Christmas is love and we need to 
carry that through the whole year. And, and I found myself wondering, is that enough? It, uh, um, you know, if we lose the the actual content of the story, is it enough? And then I went a step further to say, in some ways, these movies like The Christmas Carol, The Muppet Christmas Carol, or Love Actually, they are telling alternative and perhaps more palatable to modern audience stories which become our new Christmas story content. You know, so families gather around the stories of Love Actually or of The Muppet Christmas Carol in a way where in the past perhaps we gathered around the story of the first Christmas and the birth of Jesus. So if we applied our Christmas test to this particular one, could it be just as good a story at another time of year? The answer would probably be yes. I mean, uh, it could be a story of New Year's or it could be a story of of of, of ageing up or, or getting a promotion or... Uh, uh, starting a new thing or ending something like so there there are lots of these moments where we can actually pause to reflect on who we are um what we've been doing and whether we want to keep doing those things um christmas is a catalyst but i could probably well i just have named a whole bunch of other catalysts that could do it just as well it certainly became like back when charles dickens um wrote it it was probably christmas is the Christian go to church, Jesus um, type of thing. But we're now in an age where um, Christian is still mainstream, but it's not as um, dominant anymore. So we, it's still dominant in the way that it's the one that gets all the public holidays. And, you know, Ramadan it doesn't get a public holiday or <laughs> a public holiday week or whatever. And um, the Jewish calendar is also doesn't get public holidays so it's still dominant in that regards but the story um that of the christmas carol isn't as central to the bible and i think um if we're going to say that christmas has to be about jesus then no the christmas carol isn't but it is about the themes we find throughout the bible throughout our uh, christian beliefs of um the good love joy you know togetherness but that can also be like a muslim thing coming together and treating our neighbors well and things so just because it's got the traditional christmas garlands on it yeah it can certainly be translated differently in this day and age it's it's that holiday that all the the baggage yeah i'll use the word baggage it comes around the fact that we celebrate this holiday um, and we've forgotten the reason for the season, but all of that that sits with it. Um, the other thing that jumps onto me, and I think particularly of the nephew, when S- Scrooge becomes this person of derision the whole way through, um, and even when the nephew is gathering with his friends around what should be a family time that's wonderful. All they do is say, you know, the way he describes him when they're trying to guess who he is is not at all very flattering (laughs) and not probably what you do, well, maybe for some family members but not all family members. That ghost of Christmas present um, is is really sort of pointing out to him that he's not viewed favourably by those around him. 
um, and um, and that's a surprise to him. Like it's no surprise to us. We we looked at the past and we've gone, look at him. He's terrible. He's he's damaged his relationships for profit. He's terrible to all of his work co-workers and employees. So we're 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 with them. Um, but but then when he discovers it, it's a, it's almost a, a. I found it fairly shocking to see that he was surprised, and. Often, I mean, that's that Jahari window stuff we've talked about in other podcasts. The stuff that we don't know about ourselves um, is the stuff that can be most detrimental. And we we need people around us who we trust who can actually say, hey, you know, maybe you need to work on this or maybe you need to think about these things differently, Um, especially if we're certain we've got everything worked out in life. I think coming to your question, Will, about um, whether this is a a Christmas movie by our definition, I'm going to say I definitely say this one is because I think quite clearly it is saying that the point of the movie is to explore what is the meaning of Christmas. And we might look at the meaning of Christmas being love and say, well, you could equally place that at any other time or in another religious um, context or whatever. But they are still genuinely trying to answer the question, what is the meaning of Christmas and and, and what is important at this time? So I, I would definitely give this one a thumbs up for being a Christmas movie. There are certain elements which, um, yes, you can attribute them to other holidays, but definitely getting the day off to ha- um, celebrate with your family. And um, that can only happen generally around Christmas and um, this type of markets and celebrations and things like that. Um, yeah, I feel like this is definitely our Christmas movie. So, agreed. Mm-hmm. Has got snow. Lethal Weapon didn't have any snow. So, you know, that's that's good. Um, you know, um, but, yeah, I, I agree that it's trying to communicate the sentiment of Christmas, but you're never going to find out how many lobsters were at the birth of Christ by actually watching this movie. Um, so um, that's a good segue for us to move on to our next movie, which is Love Actually, um, where we discover there were three lobsters present at the birth of Christ, as well as an octopus and a whale. So, you know, like uh, you learn new things all the time. It's so fantastic. So. I think I was a little bit young for this one. So going back to the <laughs> trigger warnings of um, a bit of, uh, I think, well done. Looking back at it, it was very, it wasn't gratuitous. It wasn't for the sake of it, um, nudity, but uh, nudity nonetheless. And I think I was a little bit young to kind of fully understand. But um, I genuinely really like this movie and you know, I don't think you can set this at another time of year, even though with the connections and things like that being a main part of it, this is definitely one of those, yeah, we're doing this around Christmas for Christmas, Christmas time. Yeah, Mitch, in, in relation to the nudity stuff, um, I, I, uh, I, I remember um, early on in my ministry, um, you know, uh, mentioning in a sermon about love actually and what a good film it was and after I sat down, my wife leans over to me and says, great, now all the 80-year-olds are going to watch it and they're all going to faint and die during the, the scene with the two porno movie stand-ins. 
what, what's fascinating about that though, Lindsay, is that it's almost the opposite of gratuitous. It's like it's like the like you know a lot of times you know when there's nudity in a movie, it jumps out and it's there to sort of you know sensationalize the rest. But but it's actually desensationalized because of it's it's something that they're doing. And I really really love that 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 Martin Freeman. I don't know what the other actress's name is, but but their 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 kiss after their date, where it's kind of like. Wow, guys! After everything you've done and everything you've seen and all the stuff, you're actually struggling with this bit because because there was something about um, there was something about love that actually didn't involve that sensationalized eroticism that was actually part of what they were doing for their work. I think the movie desensitized you too because it wasn't just like bam; it was like, oh, okay, um, we're fully clothed. Oh, by the way, could you take off your top? And then two scenes later, the next scene they're in, which was multiple scenes later, was, okay, I've got my, no pants on and stuff like that. So and they mm. didn't treat it for as an event, I think. It was just two people. They have this weird job to, to us. Um, and then, yeah, at the end, they, you know, fall in love. So And, and they're not even the porno actors. They're the lighting people. Like they're, 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 they're there to make sure that everything works so the actual actors can come in and do the job. Like, you know, like who, who knew? I've never been on a set for a pornography movie before, but I guess there's all kinds of people. There'd be key grips and best boys and electricians. And- it's funny. I'd, I'd almost, because this is one of the movies we watch on a yearly basis, um, I had, you know, you were talking about the nudity and I was thinking about the guitars um, and the song at the end. I'd forgotten, you know, it doesn't strike me at all about the, the pornography stuff. It's just He there. promised he was going to do it. He said he was yeah, going to do it. <laughs> well, I've got a bit of a prop for us um, that'll help. Um, if you've gotten confused watching Love Actually, um, then, uh, sorry, it's got nothing to do with that last bit, by the way. <laughs> so that everyone doesn't suddenly go, oh, my gosh, what is he going to show us? Uh, here we go. Um so what we've got up here is um, a very effective um, uh, uh, relationship map yes. that actually shows us how all of the people in this particular uh, movie are connected with each other. Um, very, very helpful. I, I actually had it out today while I was watching it and um, and started to piece together bits that I, I didn't know before. Like even Nina, who has um, who is the secretary for Alan Rickman, um, who this year we would like to throw off a building, um, mm-hmm. by the way, um, uh, um, lives next door to, um, uh, what was her name? The um, Natalie. Natalie, who who is going out with the Prime Minister. Um, yeah. So there's all these relationships. And, and um, I mean, part of what I do um, online is work with the Sonderverse and the Sonder Collective. Um, and um, and this, this movie struck me as a very sonderous movie uh, a movie that actually um is, has all of these lives going on that are as vivid um and dynamic as their own um but but most of the people actually had no idea what was going on for the others around them i think the only thing i don't like about this particular um uh diagram is that it has uh the first uh item being in red love because I think actually the whole point of this movie is that there are lots of different types of love. And so, yes, there are romantic relationships, but the friendship relationships are also about love and the family relationships are also about love. And and I think, uh, you know, that's part of the texture of this movie is all these different types of love and how they're interweaved. 
And that's why the airport scene at the beginning when they're introducing the movie is equally as important is because it's not just about the romantic relationships of coming home. It's the families, you know, the mums picking up their daughters or the mm. family um, group coming and seeing grandma and um, all of that. So it really sets it up at the beginning that, yes, while we are going to talk about some romantic relationships, it is about the sis like the brother and sister who um you know talk to each other on the phone it's about the um friendship between the guy who runs the like the um director of the you know, the pornos and his mate who is the caterer uh, <laughs> catering servicer um and a little bits like that where it's like it invites in you know like Lindsay said other types of um of love mm. yeah absolutely um and and look one of the things that um i i think that we could explore here is that there are all these different kinds of love and some of them are really hard like the the love between the brother and sister the brother who has the mental health issues and the and and the way in which she clearly demonstrates love even when it's costly even when it hurts um yeah. the uh, I have to say, though, I was looking at this and I was going, if I ever need pastoral care lessons, I won't be going to visit with Emma Thompson. Um, <laughs> she doesn't seem to be very good at it, does she, um, uh, at the beginning of the movie when she's dealing with Liam Neeson. Uh, Davey uh, says uh, that uh, he's really keen to give um, uh, Love Actually 20th anniversary a rewatch. It is the 20th anniversary of Love Actually. 2003 Ooh. it came out and we're in 2023. Um, unlike Lethal Weapon, I kind of felt like it carried the two decades. Um, mm. There was stuff that would have been way ahead of its time and would have would have would have copped a bit of a beating by the rest of society in this in this movie um, that is now kind of fairly commonplace in movies today. Um, and so, looking at it from a twenty twenty three standard, you kind of go, "Oh, look, I would have liked to have seen a bit more." of this or that um it was very heteronormative um um and and even at the end i, I kind of remembered the the bill nye character and his manager actually um having more of a of a of a uh intimate relationship but that watching it now i kind of go no nah, they're just kind of that's a different kind of love they're 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 they're, they're really good good mates and they've decided that that's what they want to do spend christmas together and i, I love that it for a movie about love, it wasn't all about sex. And those types of one um, um, still to this day are very important to show um, non-sexual um, relationships between men. Like we can be mm. best friends. We can be platonic best, like besties. We can be so close that everyone thinks we're dating, but we are just like, it's just that kind of intimacy. Like, you're probably right. It was probably you're remembering a level of intimacy, but again, intimacy doesn't equal sex. It you're doesn't right. equal yep. romance. It just means you can be intimate with your friends. And that's why a lot of the time when I look at um, uh, ships, so relationships, whether they be friendship, um, whether they be real in canon or we've just made it up, um, it's about that level of intimacy. Did, did they have it? Did they, did they not? Is uh, a lot of the time the forced relationships just come out of nowhere for me whereas an intimate relationship 
I saw from the beginning. So it's really important that while, yes, we didn't have queer representation very much, we did in fact have um, this platonic bond between two old males as well, especially because of the AIDS crisis around the world, we don't get to see that type of friendship very often um, portrayed um, in queerness, but also the manly man, you know, we have to keep, you know, at arm's distance, our friends. It's like, no, we, we can still be mates and have have fun. So I'm glad you brought that up, Will, basically. <laughs> I really like Sarah's um, assumption at the wedding. So Sarah is the um, person whose brother, Michael, is, has a mental health issue. She's sitting with... Um, with Mark, who um, is is sitting there looking longingly at the couple just married, and she asks him, um, "Are you in love with him?" Um, yes. She's assumed that that he, he he's grieving the loss of his relationship with his best friend, or or maybe even more than that. And and I like the way they handled that quite delicately. There was no, you know, shocking moving away from that or 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 revulsion like we actually saw in Lethal Weapon, but we actually saw something very different where he's going, um, look, you're not right, but I can't talk about what is right at this point in time and for for obvious reasons. I mean that whole strange love triangle was really, really well explored too. Speaking yeah. of triangles, um one of the things that uh really struck me because before I got your diagram, Will, I actually wrote down all the storylines just so I could have it in my head. And and I recognised that a lot of these storylines are actually triads. They're not just about two people. And so, you know, there is, mm-hmm. as we've said, uh, the lady, uh, you know, who, who likes her colleague but has the relationship with her disabled brother that interferes. Or we have the um, you know, the, the Rickman character who has at least an emotional uh, affair with uh, his secretary, uh, you know, to the detriment of his wife. Um, or we have even with the PM uh, and, and the aide, um, Natalie, there's the, the president coming in and trying to hit on her. And, and, and so all of this was making me think one of the themes that I hadn't recognised before in this is the extent to which um, often... Uh, love is a choice. Love is actually about making an active choice. I'm, I'm going to be faithful mm. or I'm going to have an affair. I'm, I'm going to choose my brother uh, or I'm going to choose, you know, the person that I'm sexually attracted to, whatever it might be, that there's there's that element of choice. And I found myself, even with the um, uh, the, the writer character and the, the Portuguese uh, lady, uh, wondering, um, is it, is it the attraction that leads to the commitment to learn a language or is it the committing yourself to, to learn a language and to be invested in a relationship that then brings reality to that relationship? And it's probably, you know, a mm. bit of both. But I like that choice aspect. Mm. I, um, I I love the scene where they're in the lake trying to recover the <laughs> the story and you're reading the the captions and they they are in sync with each other even though they don't know they they they're talking about the same thing so the scripting writing here is showing that there is a compatibility of thought and process that they actually have with one another even though they can't understand each other at all um so i thought that was really really well written um and um yeah so i love colin firth uh, in that um that role and I liked that the relationship didn't start 
until the commitment to the languages. So it mm. wasn't like we're going to have a sexual relationship and then, oh, I like this, so let me learn your language. It was almost that third person was the cultural difference. So it was, mm. um, as you said um, about the triangles, Lindsay, um, it was them and this this difference. And so the commitment and the choice was, I'm going to breach this, um, bridge this, sorry, not breach it. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to bridge it and so that we can, try and we can continue like let's have let's have a go at this and i think they did a um a special for charity you know the red nose charity um that they do in britain where they um they have kids now <laughs> so i don't know if anyone remembers um those specials they had little snippets of that love actually life no, but I yeah they it. i think oh. they had kids if i remember correctly yeah. and oh, wow. still yeah. the language barrier a bit <laughs> It was called um, a Red Nose, actually, or something like that, about a 10-minute little short. Um, and, uh, I mean, the, the sad thing was that that was after um, Rickman had died, and so they didn't uh, follow up the Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman uh, storyline because it would be just too sad. Mm. Mm. I'd like to look for that one then. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very good showing that this type of movie, these connections, it isn't just about, oh, let's get a sequel because these two fell in love and then it turns out one of the actors didn't want to do it so they have to unwrite it and whatever. It was really a bit, so much about these people that you can extrapolate, extrapolate their lives 20 years, <laughs> you know, like I think it was 15 or something. It was for an yeah. anniversary. But, yeah, like you can actually pull this because the connections and the writing was so, like, in-depth that mm. it wasn't just hollow. It was we can take these lives multiple mm. steps. It was one of the things that I really liked about this film too was that they didn't feel the need to complete it. They didn't feel the need to, like, there were moments and, and they joked about it throughout. I think Sam, who plays Liam Neeson's son, Daniel, Daniel's son, Sam, says, you know, all love happens at the last moment, you know, like we've got a, you know, in the movies, that's what, it, and they do have a couple of those last moment things, but even then it's left kind of open. Like he runs to the end of the airport to to say hello and she comes back to give him a, a kiss, but um, we don't know what happens after that. We don't know how these stories end and they didn't didn't feel the need to give us a little, you know, pricey that says, um, you know, over the next six months they did this and this and this. Um, I also really like that. I mean, we've got Alan Rickman now as a villain in the last two Christmas specials, um, uh, once falling off the Nakatomi Plaza in Die Hard and, and now falling off um, his relationship. But I, I also really like the way that that was – handled towards the end as well that emma thompson's character said to him okay like what's it going to be how's this going to work um and that his immediate response is not to push back or to fight back but but to actually say i, I completely stuffed this up like i've i've done the wrong thing here i've and and so he cops to it straight away which to me was was a was a real loving thing to do and gave me hope that perhaps they might they might put it back together. And at you know at the final airport scene, we see that she is there to greet him. So maybe um, that's what's required when you do stuff up. That there is an opportunity if you can say, well, look, I did the wrong thing. That perhaps um, you can you can rebuild love when it seems lost. And that's um, love actually is also about ending love. So I read that scene the first time as we're staying together for the kids. 
like you don't love me or you've fallen out of love but we have to stay together and so for me it was more like yes I'm here to greet you but I I didn't kiss you I didn't hug you the looks we gave each other were like okay you know still broken so it it wasn't just about we're finding love and we're in love it was also about we fell out of love and sometimes that's what happens that we um well should end yeah I think um you know what Mitch is saying about that 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 darker side of love is is interesting in this one. And you know, when we were talking about uh, the the Muppet movie, um, one of the things that I was thinking to myself is that the the content of the meaning of Christmas there is very very sanitized. Whereas if you look at the Christmas story or some of the Christian teaching around love, it's a lot grittier. And so I, I think I like that love actually does have some of that grittiness. And, you know, my my quote uh, name for the movie would be the the, uh, the little boy's um, uh, comment to his dad at the, at the airport where he says, let's go and get the shit kicked out of us by love. Uh, and that sense that love can can have a have a cost and a, a darker side as well as it being, you know, fun and nice. And, and the dark side also echoed in the Prime Minister's relationship. Like I'd missed it the first times when I'd watched it before, but he walks away from his first encounter with Natalie where she says shit and then says fuck and then it's, you know, oh, I have to put the explicit up on this now. Um, he, says, <laughs> he, he says this is so inconvenient. So he's aware, his self-awareness is he's walking away that I've got feelings um, I don't want them. They can't be here. This is utterly inappropriate and I'm not going to be able to do anything about this, but I have them. And and so from the first moment, he's actually thinking, how am I going to deal with this? Because it, it exists there. And and he makes a really hard decision, which is easily misunderstood, to send her away. Um, it's probably the only way they can actually have a relationship with each other if he does that. Um, um, but but that's what he does, um, and and so that that little almost muttered under the breath line that is delivered by Hugh Grant there that says this is so inconvenient, um, really tells another story about love as well. It's inconvenient. Right, right person, wrong time. The other side of the darker one is um, the U.S. president and the power that comes with what he assumes. As, as the persona, all will fall at my feet and adore me. Um, and, and it just makes you think he's even nastier than he is. You just really don't like him. But that is another side of love. And um, I was thinking about it as I was driving this morning when they were talking about the um, being aware of domestic violence and the results with that, that that kind of connects in there that um, there are people that just take that power very much so. And the more power you have, the more um, room to abuse it, I I think is the thing. So, um, yeah, it's very, I think also the dynamic between the boss and the secretary could have been very, um, very icky, but if it wasn't clear that it was her, not him type of thing, because any power... Um, relationships with power dynamics in them can be very um, touchy and can fall to the wayside, you know, very easily. So we saw both of those, like the the 
the bad one and the good one type of thing. So, well, they were both bad, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, fantastic cameo by Billy Bob Thornton there. Um, one of the other favourite cameos in this one is Rowan Atkinson, who actually oh. gets two scenes. Um, <laughs> one where he's actually stuffing up Alan Rickman's day and one where he's actually being the diversion to let Sam run into the airport. But uh, I loved seeing Rowan Atkinson in those roles. It does feel like they put an ad in the paper and said, any British actors want to apply to be in a movie, please uh, contact this number. Um, they seem to have gotten just about everybody in. So... It's the fun of, of British stuff. You you see them in so many different other ones. And you think, oh, he's from, um, and it's like we we're a, a fan of Death in Paradise. So when uh, Colin was in Death in Paradise, it was oh, that's a completely different persona. Um, but yeah, yeah, I was wondering if we we're going to talk about Colin. Um, <laughs> um, yes, I. Uh, Potentially one of the problematic characters in this this thing, yes. um, they, they they've taken this outrageous um, idea and um, and then uh, made it made it successful. Um, yeah, so, I feel yes. like he was one of the ones that didn't learn a lesson somehow. Oh, I think he learned a big lesson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. his 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 his, uh, his, uh, his confirmational bias was confirmed. Um, yes. <laughs> All I have to do is go to the United States and be British and everything will work out okay. That's right. <laughs> so, yes, for all of you who are considering um, backpacking as a way to actually establish new relationships, it's probably not the best option no matter what Colin says. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, look, one of the other things was that this this movie managed to bridge class um, and, mm. and position um, all the way through um, that that uh, um, there were people from all different walks of life from different stages of life um, and so it, it covered covered it all I think today if they were making this movie they probably would have done more than black and white they might have actually looked at a number of different other cultural ways um, we get close to that with Portugal as well but like so there was there was uh, it was very little representation from other parts of the world um, that that probably would have accentuated the movie, but um, we're asking a lot from a movie that gave us already heaps from two thousand and three. So, look, it has nothing to do with the theme of the movie, um, but but I have to just mention that I, I love when um, uh, Jamie, the Colin Firth character, uh, comes to his family Christmas do with the gifts. And then he drops all the gifts and he says, you know, I've got to go and do something else. The the chorus of the little kids going, I hate Uncle Jamie. I hate Uncle Jamie. I thought <laughs> was classic. He left the presents. What more do they want, really? I mean, it's not like he took them with him. Um, Circuit Riders chimed in to ask, if you have an Australian accent and you're Colin, does it work as well? Um, so, you know, like a... Uh, I, I look. There is something attractive about somebody who is very different. Like I think that there is something, you know, when you're an alien, um, you're interesting. Um, and so I think I think Colin has discovered a truth there. But whether or not you could actually form long-lasting relationships with four women in that way, uh, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but they were poor. They didn't have more than one bed, and they couldn't <laughs> afford pajamas. So you know, I guess he went to the right bar. Um, and he only came back with one of them. 
with one. Well, and her sister, but he he gave his sister her sister to his friend. So well, there's whole implications there as well. Um, <laughs> um, they they did play around with the transactional nature of love and how it is and isn't. And that's that choice stuff that you were talking about before, Lin- Lindsay, as well, is that is that sometimes Hollywood does tend to boil love down to a transaction, um, um, but this actually um, um, makes it far more. And and I hadn't picked it before, like you said, Lindsay, that there are a lot of triangles. Uh, looking at that uh, that image I put up before, there's there's a lot of uh, triangulation in interactions that are that are, and and I guess that's something that in our individualistic move um, as a society, we're we're losing some of those triangles. We're not having those conversations. Uh, of a personal nature with people alongside each other um, um, it would have been really interesting to see what um, uh, Sarah the, the the work colleague also of Alan Rickman might have done if she had have gone and said hey look I, I think you should be not having this relationship or you know like I, I, it's a brave thing to actually step up to somebody and say hey it, you know you need to think even though Emma Thompson did say you know be careful of that one um, mm. to, to, to get, to get that from more than one place may have changed his, his performance, his, 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 um, his trajectory. Um, and so sometimes love is about saying hard things to people. At mm. the end of the day, it's still his choice. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not <laughs> excusing Alan. I want to throw him off the top of N- Nakatomi Plaza for hurting our uh, Emma Thompson. Absolutely. 100%. We just don't um, want to fall in. Like, I get what you're saying that, so many people could have done and it would have turned out differently. But at the end of the day, it was his choice. And yes, as, as much as she was doing all those seductive things, it was his choice not to do a HR report, even though like, I'm sure they were a small Mm -hmm. company, but not to on the basis of very unprofessional um, things that happen at work, you're fired or, um, not falling or just going like I know what you're doing, but no, I'm I'm a mar- you know happily married man, so obviously he wasn't. But um, it, yeah, we kind of it does a very good job. This I think this movie of not victim blaming, even the the love triangle of um, I was in love with you, but you married my best friend wasn't blaming her or blaming it. It was like, he, he Mm. knew himself that he was too late. He didn't say anything. He didn't um, do the hard yards to try. And so he was like, yeah, no, the, the reason why I'm like this is because I'm, you know, jealous and I wanted you, but that's not a you thing. I have to step away from this. And I, if I feel this, that's one of the other aspects was putting blame where blame was. We blamed the president for his behaviour. We blamed Mm -hmm. Alan Rickman for his behaviour and that type of type of thing. So... And in in some ways, we've got to hold that Sarah character for her behaviour. She doesn't have the boundaries that yeah. maybe she should have with her brother, so she can't have the relationship with Carl. And and I guess it comes down to there's this no valuing choices that's there to sort of go, okay, if we choose this, then we can have this, but we can't have this. And and I think that's that's something this movie does really really well in saying, yeah. look, we're not saying that 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 um, there are there there are 
what we're saying is that all choices have consequences um, and um, and we've got to try and make um, the best choices we can for the outcomes that we're actually looking for. Mitch, I'm thinking as you were speaking, that idea that um, the Alan Rickman employment thing is different to the Prime Minister Secretary employment thing where the Prime Minister actually asked and put the distance, whereas Alan couldn't, yeah, Rickman couldn't do. So that was just interesting, two different ways of approaching that. Talking about the Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson thing that, I have to say that in our household, um, you know, the the scene where Emma Thompson finds out and is in the bedroom crying is just like so moving. It's 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 the best acting I think you know in the whole movie. That that sort of very understated way that that she responds and 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 the way she has to hold in her emotions because of thinking about the kids and whatever. I think it's brilliant acting. By her in that, I know I was crying. The Joni Mitchell, the the having to re reset herself and walk back into the room and be be strong for everybody else. I I, I, I found myself crying at that point. Um, circuit rider on this issue of crying has asked us the question: Who do we think from the panel uh, is the saddest character in this story? It depends um, on what you mean by sad, because Colin is definitely the saddest in terms of <laughs> pathetic. <laughs> It doesn't look that sad at the end. He looks pretty happy. Well, Liam Neeson went on a journey and he was sad, but either through the journey with the sun was like came out a bit and mm. came and out. And he meets Carol at the end. Is it Carol or Karen? I can't tell. Um, so Carol. <laughs> so it depends on mm. what he means, in my opinion. Of yeah, yeah. What he means. Any other sad characters we want to? Well, I think I would vote for Sarah, the one with the disabled brother, because she's she's stuck in that situation. And while she's clearly mm. very loving to her brother, it, he doesn't necessarily respond in in appropriate ways. Tries to hit her once, and and she has clearly, as you said, because of a, a, an inability to draw any boundaries. Uh, cut herself off from other relationships, perhaps even friendships that that she might otherwise have. So I, I think she'd get my vote for the saddest. I wonder about Mark with the boombox, um, because he he has gone to a point where he's fallen in love. He's had to admit it, but know that it was never ever going to be right. Mm-hmm. Um, out of love and respect for his best mate. So there's that two sorts of love in there. Um, that's a challenge. That's a challenge to keep things as they were and move forward well. Yeah, yep. I felt for Carl too. That's a difficult situation for him to be in as well. Like he's kind of, um, you know, I mean, he's he's got to weigh up at the beginning um, what what kind of relationship he's he wants to have is because the investment to get into this relationship is now going to be much higher than it was when he thought he's not just looking across the hall at a pretty girl in the office. He's now going, okay, there's, there's a whole lot of story that comes with this. And am I up for that? Or am I not up for that? Um, And you can see him um, sort of disappearing off into the periphery while she's having the conversation with her brother on the phone. And he's kind of going, well, do I stay or do I go here? Um, And um, so I, I, I found, 
I mean, it's probably more awkward than sad, but I mean, he, he, because, because in some ways he's got to feel a little bit bad about himself. If he decides like, um, like um, Mel Gibson in lethal weapon, that the relationship's not worth it. You know, like he wants to um, not, not go any further with it. Um, That's, that's hard as well. So. I do want to also just jump in and say that I'm not sure that I'd necessarily want to uh, let um, who's the fellow with the with the jukebox? I can't remember the names now. Carl. Um, uh, no, that's that's no, uh, Mark. Carl. Mark. Uh, oh, Mark. Sorry. Mark. I, I'm not sure I want to let him off the the hook because I mean certainly he he has um, stayed within good boundaries up until when she sees the video and realizes that he's in love with her. And, and, and I think he handles that. Okay. The, the cards, I can kind of get behind the telling a truth, but I did think that there was at least one, which was the, my wasted heart will, you know, long for you until you look like, you know, a mummy. It's a bit manipulative. Like I'm never going to stop loving you the whole of your life that that's a bit manipulative and I found myself at the end wondering what does the line enough now mean like is that mean enough now I will move on and, and leave her behind despite talking about my wasted heart or is it that's enough for now and I'm hoping there will be more later it, I think it was ambiguous and 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 so yeah I, I, I don't let him off the hook I was hoping for the second one because she doesn't get a right of reply with the cards. It was very, like, I think he needed it. I think he needed to know that he could say it without interruption. But also she needs a right of reply. Does she want to continue having him in their lives? I know he's the best friend of my husband, but do I want him around if I know that he's going to act like this? He's act Like he said, he's acted like fine but up until this point, but this changes things so yeah. i yeah. agree i agree Lindsay. yeah her kiss though is a bit of a right of reply she didn't have to come yeah. down and chase him down the street um but yeah i i also felt really uncomfortable with the video stuff like there was something very stalkerish happening there it kind of and that it was it was there to actually say hey he was interested but he was he was guilty he knew that he he shouldn't have done that and that's why he wanted to hide it um, and so he was still struggling to work out what the best choice was. Um, but I mean, the movie's full of people who are actually struggling to work out what choice there is, even even down to whether we put a cinnamon stick into the Christmas wrapping. So, um, well, I think probably um, we did promise we we're going to talk about the Doctor Who Christmas special, the Christmas Invasion, and we're 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 well over our hour now. So, but with the time remaining, let's um, let's get into Doctor Who. Um, the 60th anniversary um, uh, Christmas special of the Doctor Who series will be airing um, within the next 24 hours. Um, really looking forward to that. I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. Um, I went back and watched this one, which I had forgotten was the very first episode of David Tennant just after his regeneration. Um, um, uh, what do we think about uh, this Christmas special as a as a Christmas show? Lindsay, kick us off. Uh, look, I mean, clearly it is a Christmas special so that it, it's meant to be celebrating Christmas and it's meant to be focused on Christmas. But I, I think, 
for for me, this one falls more in the lethal weapon. You could do it at any time. They they needed a Christmas mm. special, so they put it at Christmas. Um, I guess it's got a message of peace, particularly when we take into account um, the Doctor's response to Harriet Jones um, blowing up the, the ship and, and him, you know, basically bringing down her government with six words. Uh, so maybe that's about peace. But, yeah, no, I, I, this one didn't really cut it as a Christmas episode for me. Very much this is what the doctor does all the time like in the satellite for um for nine he does the same in uh 11 does the same like all of the doctors have this protection uh not racket but protection of um what they love and you're right i they he would have done it if it was just an invasion some uh, at another random time. I, uh, store mannequins are available every <laughs> all the time. <laughs> just, just because they look like Santa doesn't mean um, it was necessarily Christmas. But in the saying that they did well to incorporate Christmas into the fact that this is a Doctor Who story. So, um, you know, we want to go spend time with the family and um, Rose's family looks a bit different to um, the traditional nuclear family. And um, the boyfriend looks a bit different, especially this is coming back. Um, the first season was 05. So, um, we, you know, it was a little bit um, good in that regards being so long ago. And so they did a really good job of Doctor Who set at Christmas time. Mm. Yeah, it was a, yeah, the Christmas stuff was the tool that helped move things on, but it wasn't the be all and end all. Yeah, and it happened to be at Christmas time. So, yeah, that that's, so they got Santa Clauses, they got Christmas trees, they got those kind of things. But, but yes, it could easily have happened at, at any other time. Um, I, I, I really, for me, the, the there was a, a thing about transition which happens at Christmas time too. Um, we've got this is the first regeneration in the what we call the New Who universe, and I, I, I it'd make a great drinking game to actually pick up things like how often does uh, it's uh, it does somebody say it's still me, it's still you, different face, different. There's this, there's this. They're really making a big deal to actually go even though this is a different person, even though this is a different time. And I wondered sometimes whether or not I do that with my Christmas services as well. Like I, we, we had a big conversation earlier about, um, you know, our story being the reason for the season. And sometimes what we've got to do is put our own stamp on it to say, we own this, this is our thing. Um, and, um, and and sometimes we look like we're trying a little bit too hard. And I, I think they were trying extremely hard to actually get across to new fans who had never seen it before what a regeneration was like and um, that, um, that uh, Eccleston was gone, um, that Tennant was here, um, and that the Doctor would be different and the same. And that different and the same idea is something I think I really like to apply to our, our Christian story is to say, okay, we're in 2023 now. Things have to be different, um, but things can also be the same. And how do we get that balance right between the two? It's, it's interesting going back to the love actually and talking of the love bit, um, even though it's not seen, we all know how head over heels, Rose falls for the doctor and vice versa. But she takes very little time to move from Eccleson into Tenet, even though there is such a change. 
mm. which I thought was interesting. Very Beauty and the Beast, because we we mm. find from Beauty and the Beast, um, the regeneration there is also. She took little time to go um, to take the the transformation in and maybe that could just be like a knee jerk you know like oh we're in this situation so I have to deal um like I can put it in a box and then deal with the situation and then later on in the TARDIS when she's um by herself she can be like oh wait he's got a completely different face and maybe uh, the first time you know she comes out and sees this guy he's like where's the leather jacket oh it's you know, mm. remember it, that different thing. It's the stuff, the off screen that we we might be, um, not be able to extrapolate from. But um, yeah, the transformation of the Doctor, and we all know, like you said, um, it's not an um, it's not a new thing. But considering kids in two thousand and five starting this brand new series, um, they'd yeah. heard about it uh, from their parents and th this was theirs. So that, every, you know, a, a lot of people's first doctor was Christopher Eccleston. So having to make the point of you, you're not getting your doctor back, but <laughs> we're still here for you, you know, yeah. come, come with us, trust us on this journey. And I think a lot of people did, you know, he's one of the most popular doctors, I think, in a mm. lot of polls. That's why they've brought him back for the 60th. They brought him back for the 50th. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> I could think he said he would be, he'd be wheeled out of the TARDIS, uh, old and grey, if, um, <laughs> if they let him, so. So we've got a couple of questions from online. Circuit Rider has asked, how would the doctor do theology given what appears to be a recent passion for doing Christmas. Um, so we could probably do an entire episode on the theology of Doctor Who. Uh, yeah. And the other question is, is Doctor Who narrative an incarnational Christmas narrative or an Easter transformational resurrection narrative? Um, and does this limit the writers? So there's, there is something very Easter of this story whilst yeah. they're actually in the Christmas space. Well, one mm. of the, the, one of the Jodie Whittaker ones was actually New Year. So that's why... Mm. Doctor Who at Christmas is more a Doctor Who story based on at Christmas because they based it on New Year. Like the whole point of the internet being down when everyone was home hungover <laughs> um, was a New Year's thing. So, and I think this is the only, is this the only Christmas one with a regeneration? Because some of the other specials are not necessarily Christmas. Um Matt Smith has a faux regeneration during a Christmas special, but it's not the actual regeneration. Um, so. Yeah. So whether this was just a good opportunity to not have to explain it in a in the thirteen episode series, this was a, mm. a uh, from a writer's perspective, we can get the pre you know the ground zero out now, and then we can we can have thirteen episodes of adventure as opposed to a brand new who are, who are you kind of thing taking up an episode of a limited series so yep. from a writer's point of view from a theo theological point of view Lindsay Jay jump in <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say this conversation is uh, I mean it's been helpful because I think I hadn't put enough stock in the fact of, of it being a regeneration story at Christmas. And it, it kind of made sense then of something that hadn't made sense when I first uh, was watching it through this time, which was um, all the stuff about the launching the rocket and, and, and Harriet Jones 
referring to this as the spirit of Christmas. And then the, the commentator, the scientist, whatever he is, talks about the spirit of Christmas being birthed and rejoicing and the birth of a new age. And when you then overlay that with the regeneration story, it makes a lot more sense that somehow they're trying to say the meaning of Christmas is is a new thing. And look here, we've got a new doctor uh, you know that that fits that. Um, so that that was a bit of a disconnect for me, but now it's it's making more sense in the light of the the need to actually bring in the new doctor. Mm. I think the interesting thing in that is the um, so the new thing, the regeneration or or, or that weapon that happens, um, is then rejected by the doctor as not the way to go forward. So. We might bring in a new thing and think it's going to solve all our problems, but is that really accurate and is that the best way to go? Um, but, uh, yeah, it's probably the, the regeneration stuff's more a little more Easter to me um, than, than necessarily Christmas, particularly the new hand. Um, well, see, that hand becomes really, really important later yeah. on. So um, for those who are getting ready to go, there's a there's a range of things that you probably need to know before you try to watch the 60th if you haven't been keeping up. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff that's happened in the last series that's good to catch up on. Um, but as well as that, you'll need to brush up on your doctor, your Dr. Donna and your hand. Uh, yeah. You'll need to know more about unit um, and um, the legacies of the Lethbridge Stewarts. So there's lots of um, lots of stuff um, for for fans, and and that's one of the things I'm loving about where Doctor Who's been going over the last little while is that for me the people talk about which is your favourite Doctor, and I'll go well. There's only one Doctor Who. Uh, Doctor Who is an individual. Um, and I had um, a, uh, somebody pose to me the other day, and I spoke to my son about this. Uh, um, who has DID, um, to look at Doctor Who from a DID perspective is actually a really interesting thing um, because what you've got there is you've got all of these different personalities inhabiting the one system. Um, mm. And they've started playing with that a little bit. In the last episode of last season, you get to see Peter Davidson be the Doctor and 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 have a conversation with the Doctor in this other space um, as well as um, others. So they're starting to bring the old the old doctors back in as conversation partners for the current doctors. Uh, and of course we know that time, time is, uh, is more of a wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing. Um, so um, when we're talking about old and new and, uh, and beginning and end, um, we're running into all kinds of trouble when we talk about Dr. Who, because it's uh, begins and ends all over the place. Um yeah, so look, I think we've we've covered it uh, fairly admirably. Um, I was hoping to to get through in about an hour and a half, and we've got uh, another four minutes to go before we get to that point. So, just wanted to plug a couple of things. Um, if you're watching us now, then you're on Twitch, so please uh, follow my Twitch. Uh, you'll see all kinds of um, fun stuff. Um, if you're listening to us now, then you're already listening to us on um, on um, Spotify or another place. Uh, so um, I'd encourage you to let others know um, the, the, the best way to, to, sh to share a good thing at Christmas time is to tell other people about it. And uh, if you've enjoyed this, then please um, share it around so that others can enjoy it as well. We've got a couple of things coming up very shortly. Speaking of DID, my Moon Knight crew, uh, John Squires and Praxis Nicholas, will be joining me as a special for Voyager, replacing our usual Voyager crew um lindsay and uh, elizabeth will have the the morning off um and we'll be looking at uh 
Infinite Regress, an episode where Seven of Nine uh, finds herself um, being inhabited by all of the different personalities from her experience of being a Borg. So we thought that was too good an opportunity to pass up than to have them come along and have a chat to us about that. So that'll also be live here on this Twitch channel um uh coming up friday week uh actually next friday actually uh is when that will be friday uh the um first of december um is when that will be on twitch and it'll get released in order with the other podcasts um as well um so that's uh that's coming out um soon and i'll do that one live as well if there's stuff that you would like to see us do um then please uh, send us a message at never odd or even a facebook group um or you can actually send us an email at never odd or even dot me at gmail.com um or you could join a patreon you could come and support us as a patreon and uh, i feel like I'm, I'm i'm pushing here you can uh, you can you can uh, become a, a, a sub on Twitch. Uh, there's lots of ways you can support this growing and burgeoning uh, never odd or even um, uh, network that's happening. I was about to call it a ministry because that's that's the world I live in, but I, I think it kind of fits beyond that. So um, I'm once again really, really grateful to my, my guests for coming on today and being a part of the panel. Um, I'm grateful for anybody who um, is, um, has participated in the in the chat today. Um, and um, I think uh, uh, I might just throw out for any last words. Uh, we'll we'll start with we'll start with Jay, then Lindsay, and then Mitch uh, for any final words before um, we close out. I have to admit, the only thing I'm thinking is, what on earth are we going to do next year? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> and, and which ones? But um, I think we we did some great movies and loved having to having to sit and watch them again. And that was um, even Doctor Who. But I, I love this opportunity to really stop and think and talk rather than just watch. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, look, I, I always enjoy um, uh, this little group and uh, doing our, our Christmas special. I, I hope it becomes a, a real um, uh, you mm. know, a thing that we, we do. I, I, I loved the, uh, the, the Harriet Jones uh, quote, uh, in Doctor Who because it becomes such a running joke. Yes, we know who you are. And, and e- even the aliens, you know, respond, yes, we know who you are, uh, which which <laughs> always tickles my fancy. So, you know, join Patreon and support Never Odd or Even because we know who you are. We know who you are. <laughs> I mean, my favourite line um, was, uh, light the lamp, not the rat, light the lamp, not the rat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, bringing that Muppet Muppetness back to a Muppet movie, um, uh, so I couldn't get away without quoting that. But um, yes, hopefully we'll be back in the new year with Loki season two. Uh, I'm more than excited to be back for that. Mm, and yep. um, if there's any other series, like we, uh, Will has uh, done quite a few of the Marvel series, but we are geeks, multi-denominational uh, geeks. So if there's any other series. Um, that you would like us to maybe have a look at, definitely, mm-hmm. um, definitely let Will know because we're more than welcome to chat, watch and chat about lots of different things. So um, I will see you in the new year, hopefully with Loki too. Yep, you're right, Mitch. Loki two is coming up in the new year as well as a new Moon Knight series, as well as uh, uh, 
uh, Agatha um, as a follow-on from from Wanda. So, so there's a few teams to bring back next year. Um, also, there'll be a new Dune movie next year as well. So um, lots to look out for in 2024 as we go into another uh, never-odd or even year. But until then, um, this has been the Christmas special. Uh, and uh, thank you all for joining us. And we'll catch you all soon. I feel it in my heart, in my fingers, I feel it in my toes, feel it in my toes, yeah, love is all around, God bless us, everyone.